Well, welcome this morning. It is, as you can see, Palm Sunday, and we are taking a break from our Daniel series. Uh, however, the last two or three chapters, whether you're in the South community or uh, Highway 33, we've got two more chapters to go, chapter 11 and 12, and they are doozies. They are amazing. In fact, chapter 12, of course, introduces in the clearest terms, the power of the resurrection. And if any of you have ever read theology about the resurrection, you will know that it goes back uh, to Daniel, Daniel chapter 12. So we've got some exciting material to unpack uh, before we finish the Daniel series. And uh, but in between that, of course, we're now entering Easter. And what you'll know is that we've made a big deal of Easter at Willow Park Church. We're beginning, of course, here on Palm Sunday, and we're going to be preaching and thinking about Jesus's entrance into Jerusalem. Of course, the clearing of the temple and, of course, the story of the fig tree of which he spoke to clearly. And why did he do that? It always seems a little mean, doesn't it? Well, you'll find out why he did that as we carry on with this service. But I don't know what burdens you are carrying as we begin uh, this service. I don't know what you're believing God to do. Perhaps you're carrying a heavy burden. Perhaps you're carrying a a sense that you really need the Lord to bring that peace, that shalom peace, that peace that comes, that brings blessing and will cause your life to flourish and to grow. Well, I believe that as we step into worship and we step into this service, that if you have an open heart, the Lord wants to come and he truly wants to meet with you and be with you. So, Father, thank you for the opportunity to begin this Palm Sunday service together. We thank you for the joy that there is in celebrating the King and his entrance into Jerusalem. What a remarkable image as you, Lord, fulfilled the prophecy that spoke in Zechariah, in Zechariah 9.9, that spoke about the entrance of the Messiah coming on a donkey, on a colt, into the city. Uh, we rejoice with that. We give thanks for that, Lord. And so, Father, we pray that you will bless our service right now and encourage us as we go deeper into your word. Amen. Right now, we're going to step in to a time of worship. And as we worship together, uh, just really do believe that the Holy Spirit will come and encourage you and minister to you right now. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Palm Sunday. As we, uh, as we start off this most holy of weeks, um, as we go into this, this morning we're going to be singing praise and worship, and we're going to be um, directing our praise towards, towards God and towards Jesus for what he's done. Um, but as I grew up as a kid, I always was confused about Palm Sunday because everyone that would lay down their lay down their leaves, lay, lay down lay down their palms, I would just be like, one week later, their hearts change, and I never wanted to be like that. And my prayer is that we're not like that, and we understand now what Christ's kingdom is about. So I'm going to read a bit of a reading here, and then after this next song, I'm going to talk a little bit into. Um, 
just the history of Palm Sunday. So I'm going to read from Luke um, chapter 19. Verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany, the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you're untying it, say the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it, and just as they told them, as they were untying the colt, the owner asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When they came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God with loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory to the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, even the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. He said, if you even, if even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now you're hidden from your eyes. The day will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground and your children within the walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Father, I pray that we would recognize your goodness and you coming to us. I pray that we would recognize who you are, Jesus, as we, as we celebrate you and we sing this song. In your name, Jesus, amen. Stop. 
this first day of Holy Week, we see this juxtaposition happening uh, in Jerusalem at this time. King Herod and, uh, and Pontius Pilate are coming in, are coming into the city on the other side of the city. And as they come in, they're riding these war horses. They're riding these horses that signify they want this kingdom. And anybody that's going to come up against them needs to have bigger might and stronger might. And what does Jesus do? He's not in this place where he needs to prove himself with his strength or his might or his military power, which he very well could do at the snap of a finger. But he calls for this donkey and he rides in on a donkey, signaling peace, signaling love. And these people that are celebrating him are hoping for a victorious king to come and conquer Herod, come and conquer this land. But Jesus says, my kingdom is different. My kingdom is upside down to what your kingdom is, your kingdom ideals. And Jesus arrived at the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem. He deliberately enacted the 500-year-old prophecy from Zechariah. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Sing aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you triumphant and victorious. Humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He will take away the chariot from Ephraim and the, and the war horse from Jerusalem. The weapons of war will be broken, and he will teach peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and the river 
to the ends of the earth. Jesus not only entered Jerusalem from the opposite direction than the Roman governor, but in the opposite manner, riding on a donkey, proclaiming peace and love for all those who are hurt and broken and poor. That's the God that I serve. That's the God who we worship. And now we're going to be singing a song about our way maker, our miracle worker, and our promise keeper. And he is the light in the darkness.
so many truths about who you are this morning, about what you can do and, and, and what you promised us and that you always, you always come through, Father. You are so faithful in the tiniest things in our lives. Father, I pray that today we feel that, we feel the weight of your love, Father, that line that says, I can see the love in your eyes. I pray that we feel that so deeply in us today, today and for the rest of our lives forevermore, Father, that we see that love and we feel that love that you have in your eyes for us, that you chose us and that you delight over us, Father. I pray over the sermon this morning, I pray over the words that they would not be um, the speaker's words, but they would be your words, Father. Um, We pray that we can glorify and worship you this morning. Well, it's that time when we take communion and we remember all that the Lord has done and the way that he has come to rescue us. I was reading recently about the story of Arbroath Abbey. Now, you may not be aware of Arbroath Abbey. Why would you? Unless, of course, you're from Scotland and you know that Arbroath is by Dundee and it's on the east coast. It's a wild coast. Uh, Arbroath is an ancient Scottish town, a market town and fishing port that was famous. It was famous for many things. It was famous in the Middle Ages uh, for its abbey and for the prayer that went on and the abbey that was built, which was massive, actually. It's now in ruins after the uh, Reformation. And But when you go to Arbroath Abbey and you see the ruins, uh, you'll notice something quite interesting. High up in the ruins, there is a massive round window. Now, that's not unusual for some uh, cathedrals and abbeys. If you've traveled through Europe and, in fact, been to some of the older cities in uh, Canada, like uh, Montreal or Quebec, where you see the churches and high up you see a big, beautiful, round uh, window. The remarkable thing about this round window was that they used to burn fires in this window. And the light of the fire would go out across the ocean. And the reason the monks did this was to warn the sailors about the reef that is off the coast of Arbroath and has has actually brought many ships to ruin. Uh, All the way as recently as HMS York sank about 200 years ago on that spot. But through the Middle Ages and and before that, this spot was always known for the reef that was there. They attempted to do things to warn ships. They put a bell on the reef and it, after a storm, it blew away. And so it became known as Bell Reef. But eventually, of course, there was going to be built a a massive lighthouse on this reef. But before that, the abbey would burn a continuous fire that would alert sailors and know that they were in the vicinity of our broth. For me, that is a fabulous picture 
of the light of the gospel in the life of the church that needs to keep burning to warn people about the wreckage and the pain of sin. And there is a way to avoid the wreckage and the storm of darkness and of sin. What is that light that shines? Well, obviously, in the minds of the monks, that fire that burnt throughout the evenings was a message, a message of hope, a message of salvation. And everything that is in the cross is a burning light that tells us of hope and salvation, that we can avoid the storms and the wreckage. And so as we take communion, we are reminded that the body of Christ was broken. And the reason his life was broken was so that he could send out the light of the world, the way of salvation. He paid for original sin. He paid the price for our brokenness. He came as a beacon to rescue us from the wreckage of sin and death. Lord, we thank you for the body of Christ that was broken for us. And Lord, even as I look at the shape of this wafer, which is a round wafer, it reminds me of the round window where the fire would always burn in the abbey to let people know the dangers and the hope. And we thank you that your body shows us that there is hope, that there is forgiveness, and there is a way of salvation. The body of Christ, broken for you. Jesus poured out the wine, which represented his blood. The blood that would take away the sins of the world. The blood that would save us from our lives being shipwrecked. The blood that would stop us from being torn to pieces by the power of sin and death and Satan. The blood that protects us. The blood that saves us. The blood that delivers us. Lord, we thank you. For this, and we remember the cost that you paid and the way that you gave your life for us and that your blood was shed. Only by the blood of Jesus do we find forgiveness and are we cleansed. The blood of Christ that takes away the sins of the world. Drink it in remembrance of him. Amen. Maybe you feel adrift. Maybe you feel lost. Well, let me tell you, look out towards the cross like that burning light and you will find rescue and help and salvation. Palm Sunday. What a day to celebrate. And now we're going to hand over to Courtney 
and the news of all that is going on in Willow Park Church. And I look forward to seeing you soon. Hello, Willow Park Church. My name is Courtney. Thank you for joining us at Church Online. Here is your family news. Alpha is a free online course that creates a space to explore the Christian faith and discuss life's big questions. We are starting the Alpha course online starting Tuesday, April 13th at 7 p.m. and it will run for several weeks. If you haven't taken this course yet, or even if you haven't taken it in a while, we encourage you to sign up and bring a friend. Learn more at willowparkchurch.com alpha. The Marriage Course is a free online series of sessions designed to help couples invest in their relationships and build a stronger marriage. The next Marriage Course will be starting on April 19th. It's free to sign up and you have the flexibility of watching the weekly video at a time that works best for you and your spouse. Learn more and sign up today at willowparkchurch.com marriage. Clubs is starting up next week, and this time it will be in three locations, in Rutland, in the Mission, and in Lake Country. This is an amazing opportunity to bring your kids and your kids' friends and neighbors to a fun night of games, songs, crafts, and more. Register soon as space is limited. Learn more at willowparkchurch.com clubs. Our online groups for women are starting up again in April. Gather is a time for women to connect and it happens every Thursday morning at 9.30 a.m. starting this week on April 1st. Deeper is a Bible study for women that happens Monday nights at 7 p.m. starting April 12th. And this session, they will be reading and discussing Craig Rochelle's latest book called Winning the War in Your Mind. Find out more about these online groups on our website. Easter is just around the corner, and we are so excited to celebrate with you here at Willow Park Church. We have a whole week of special services and prayer nights planned. This week, Monday through Thursday, we will have four nights of prayer and worship for Holy Week, online each evening at 7 p.m. We will also have multiple online and drive-in services on Good Friday and Easter Sunday. You can get all of the details on our website at willowparkchurch.com Easter. That's all for your family news. Thanks and enjoy your service. Palm Sunday, a time to celebrate and remember as we begin to move our way towards Easter. We begin and we move forward and we're thinking of all that Christ has done for us and the way that he's given his life. Palm Sunday is beautiful. It is glorious. It, it helps me in my mind as I come towards the end of Lent to really focus on what the Lord Jesus Christ, his mission, his task of what he was choosing to do. He was choosing to come into the world and to bring the light in the darkness. As I said, you know, many people whose lives have been shipwrecked on the, um, on the reefs of sinfulness and pain and darkness, on the evil that swirls around the world, on the way that sin holds people and holds them down. And yet there is a glorious light that is shining that says, follow me. 
Jesus said himself, of course, in John's Gospel, I am the light of the world. Yes, if we follow that light, we will not shipwreck our lives. But if we follow any other light or any other way in the darkness, then we're in danger of seeing the shipwreck of our lives take place. And boy, we know a little bit about what goes wrong with shipwrecks this week, don't we? In terms of uh, the Suez Canal. And there is a ship that is stuck in the Suez Canal and all of these containers backing up. And, and of course, the way through is blocked completely. And there's those uh, pictures of this massive containers all on this uh, cargo ship as it's kind of turned and, and completely blocking that canal. And there's no way through. Of course, uh, the truth is they've got to work a way of how to move that ship and how to get it straight so they can, they can have access again to the Mediterranean or access again to the Red Sea. There is a blockage. Well, of course, the whole message of, of Palm Sunday as we move forward is that Jesus is en route to remove that blockage that stops that communication and that connection and the damage that sin has created to the human condition and to the human heart. To remove that so we can travel to another land, so we can find our way on the right path in the right way. And sin always blocks us like that can ship in the route. It stops us. It stops us from, from traveling. It stops us from discerning what God has for us. It stops us from moving forward in our lives. So let's remind ourselves of the great passages. Mark chapter 11 of Jesus. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus went Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. Isn't it interesting that it says that it's no one's ever ridden this cult? That probably explains why they said, well, why are you taking this? Who sent you? Nobody's ridden this. This is, you know, Jesus is... Supernatural powers, I don't know, spread always to, to a point where he becomes the, the horse trainer or the colt trainer or the donkey trainer here. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? The Lord needs it and it will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at the doorway as they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? I want you to imagine the scene. Often, probably where this colt was, it wasn't in the expensive part of Jerusalem. It was in the slums, in the hustle and bustle of areas of cities that were really shanty towns, filth and garbage. In fact, in many of the shanty towns around the great cities, even Roman soldiers wouldn't walk through those shanty towns, those areas where people lived with the very basic. 
where there was no sanitation, there was no running water. They had to go and, um, to one of the fountains to find water because of all the people crammed in, of all of the, the smells and the movement. Often Roman soldiers would wander in to the shantytown areas of major cities and never come out alive. Why? Well, because of the way that they were hated. Even in the city of Rome, Roman centurions wouldn't go into parts of the city in fear that they would lose their life or lose their way and get trapped. And so the disciples come and they come into this intense area where thousands of people are gathered around in the filth, in the squalor, in the garbage. And, and they find this moment where they find this cult. And you can imagine the crowd. And when you go into uh, shanty towns, I've been in a, a number in, in Kenya and um, in different places around the world, you know, people do talk to you. People ask you, what are you doing? They ask you for things. Uh, groups of people gather around and they're always watching what is taking place. But this was a pre-prepared moment. This was a moment in God's plan to fulfill a prophetic word that, for, that is spoken in uh, Zechariah 9 verse 9. That he will enter in on a colt, on a young donkey. He will enter in and he will come into Jerusalem. And so they found the colt. And they untied it. And some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that cult? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. And when they brought the cult to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Now Jordan has already made the point that Jesus entered Jerusalem on a cult, on a donkey. On a very simple creature, not on a war horse. I mean, a donkey is something, or a small colt, is something that you would use, you know, for children. It's something that is unimpressive. I mean, often when I preach about Abraham going off with all of his 300 men riding off on donkeys, it's like a scene from Shrek because the war horse and the mighty horse hadn't been... Um, hadn't been developed at that point, hadn't been tamed. They used donkeys in the Abrahamic time. But of course, in this age, mighty war horses. You've got, you've got statues of Alexander the Great on a mighty horse. You've got here the famous story of him taming the wild horse of power and then going through the world. And that's in, in the kind of mythology of Alexander the Great as he's on his Beautiful, powerful horse that nobody could tame. But he tamed the horse and rode it and showed himself as a young man that he was a prince, that he was descended from the gods, that he was powerful, that he was on his war horse and ready to go. But Jesus gets on a, a little donkey. I mean, I remember getting on donkeys. I, we used to go on holiday to a place called Blackpool, in Lancashire. And I, I'd get on the beach and I'd say to my mum instantly, Mum, the donkeys. And there would be an old man usually smoking a woodbine or a cigarette. And as he was stood there with his flat cap and his weathered face, I'd look at him. And as a little boy, I remember going, can I, can I ride on the donkeys? And of course it was what? I don't know. 
50 pence or um, a loony or toony today. And, and my mum would come and, and would lift all the children on and would sit on this donkey because they're hilarious. They're funny. They're small. They're not war horses. I mean, but uh, what was funny was as I sat on the, um, on the donkey, the donkey I sat on turned around as my mum walked away and he nipped her on the arm. And she always talked about that, those horrible donkeys, you know. And there was this massive scream that went out. And it was, an, it was a hilarious moment. You had to really be there. But then the man used to come, and he, he still with another cigarette in his mouth, used to hold the donkey, which was tied to another donkey. And there were about 20 donkeys on the beach. And all had like three, four, five, six-year-olds. And he would lead them. All down the beach, he would go the least distance he could to make the most money and then come round in a circle and lead us back. And I was as proud as punch. I was on the donkey. I was bouncing along with all the other children. It was something that was for children. It was something that was simple. It was something that was quaint. But we, here we have the king of kings, not riding on a war horse, not riding like Herod or Pilate would have done, but riding on a donkey coming into Jerusalem. Now, of course, he's doing it to pro- fulfill a prophecy here about the Messiah. But also what he's doing He's making a very profound point. That while Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the majesty and the ruler, he is also the humble and the meek. And what you have in this picture of the donkey, of the colt, is you have the picture of majesty, the The living God and meekness. You have the two together, majesty and meekness, working, present, there. The sovereign of all creation, choosing to be meek and humble and gentle. I love that. Because it reminds me the kind of God that I'm serving. It reminds me that within Jesus... And it reminds me that I can, I, I, in my own character, you and I, yes, we have to learn to be strong, to be courageous. But at the same time, we have to learn to live in brokenness and humility and meekness. And Jesus modeled this. He was not like the rulers of this world that came to steal, that came to control, that came to uh, break lives. He came in meekness. And as he came from the east, he would have come over the hill and looked over Jerusalem and come down the hill. I've uh, done that route. I've walked it. And I can imagine this early in the morning with the sun behind him. Jesus. Jesus is making his way towards Jerusalem. And they cut down the palms Those who went ahead, who followed, shouted, Hosanna. 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming king of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. With this amazing picture. We have this amazing image of Jesus entering Jerusalem in the appropriate manner as a conquering king, but not on the appropriate means of travel, on the appropriate vehicle, if you like. He entered in meekness because it wasn't about conquering people, cities, Jerusalem. It wasn't about rebellion within What it was really about was his pathway to the cross where he would achieve so much more than they ever imagined. And I want to think about this this idea. Of course, Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foul of a donkey. Look at this. Prophesied in Zechariah 9.9, being fulfilled in this moment in Scripture on Palm Sunday. And again, this reminds us that you and I as believers can trust God's Word, that what's spoken in the prophecies will be fulfilled in reality, that we can trust God's Word, that yes, that the majesty and the meekness of the saviour of the world has come to the city and has come to set the people free. He has come in, in his meekness, but in his humility and in his brokenness, he will redeem the world. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep, see, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He's able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne. Revelation 5, verse 5 to 6. Why do I show this? Because if we've got the kind of image of Jesus on a donkey and not on a war horse... It reminds me so clearly of this verse. It reminds me within these two verses, you have the wholeness and the beauty of Christ all coming together. What do you have? Well, you have a a lion with its power, with its majestic force. You have the lion of the tribe of Judah. A lion, of course, is known for its position, the king of the animals. It's known for its force. It's known for its power. It was a symbol in the ancient world of the Assyrians. It was a symbol of greatness. It was a symbol of sovereignty. It's a symbol of power. Many of the coat of arms across Europe and in Britain, what do they have? They have a power of a lion on those coat of arms. But then John tells us that as he looked, do not weep, see the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Hosanna, they sang to the one from the line of David. You see that verse in Mark? Has triumphed. 
he is able to open the scroll and the seven seal. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. Within these two verses, you have this idea of Jesus as a lion and Jesus as a lamb. And if we spend time thinking about this, if we spend time meditating on two complete opposites, a lamb and a lion, these are opposites. But as you think about it, you start to understand who Jesus is. Jesus is a lion. <clears throat> he's sovereign. He's powerful. He's majestic. He's a symbol, an image of all glory. No wonder C.S. Lewis, of course, created Aslan for the Narnia series. And when he roared, the whole of creation heard the roar. Then on the other side, you have a lamb, helpless, meek, humble, sacrificial, giving. Something that is is profoundly compelling. If you've ever sat and spent some time around sheep and and you've seen lambs in lamb and you've seen them playing in the fields there you just can't help but stand and watch them skipping and jumping around and and they're just playful like wonderful and you just want to wow they're compelling to watch and what we get in this verse is a whole picture if you meditate on it long enough you get a whole picture of the very beauty and the very nature of Jesus Christ. Of the God that we serve. Of these powerful attributes that he's not just powerful and angry and sovereign, but he's meek and humble and sacrificial and giving. These two are there. He's not just a king that enters Jerusalem on a war horse like a lion. But he enters Jerusalem almost like a lamb in simplicity. And of course the reason he enters is because as, as Revelation says, Then I saw the lamb looking as if he had been slain, standing in the center of the throne. And the whole mission of Palm Sunday is that Jesus has been declared the son of David. He's been declared the Messiah, but he will go. And like a lamb, he will go to the slaughter. And he will be slain. And Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple and he looked around at everything But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began to drive out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and then the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple court. You get a sense of the lion here 
not so much the lamb. Now, what is happening here? Well, of course, the temple was the center of the religious operation. We know a bit more about the temple because of our teaching in Daniel. But up until the time of Herod the Great, the temple was quite a small, measly temple in terms of uh, global temples. The temple itself was designed pretty much on the same model that most temples were designed in the ancient world. We've got uh, Hittite temples that exist and you can go there and you can see them and they're exactly the same as the temple of Jerusalem. You have outer courts, you have inner courts and you have the Holy of Holies. Of course, in pagan temples, you'd go into the Holy of Holies and what would you find? A statue, an idol, an image. Of course, one of the great things that when, when, when Caesar Augustus came into the temple and looked around, he wanted to go into the Holy of Holies. And he went into the Holy of Holies and he, you know, there is accounts of writing that there, there was nothing there. It was empty. Of course it was empty because the temple was never about an idol. The temple for the Jews and for the Christians is about the power and the presence of God dwelling in the temple. Of course there was no idol. There was no image. There was no God to be worshipped because our God, his spirit, he was, he was there dwelling in his holy presence and his holy glory. But what they had done after it was rebuilt by Zerubbabel and the temple was, you know, would make people weep because of how small it actually looked until Herod the Great, not so great, came along. He expanded it. He developed Jerusalem. He built the temple. The Alexandrian Jews sent gold so that he could adorn the temple. And rather than the temple being kind of second rate as it was after the rebuilding, it was now starting to look glorious and powerful. And why did Herod do this? Well, Jerusalem hasn't got a lot going for it, except in terms of commerce. It's a medium-sized, small city. They turned religion into business. And what Herod understood was that there were 12% of the Roman Empire were Jews. And those Jews, that 12%, something between 6 and 8 million Jews, would pay tithe to the temple. So when Jesus walked into the temple, the temple was like a trading floor. It was like a place. You imagine how it used to be the New York trading floor or the London trading floor. People shouting, people waving, people bartering, people handling, people coming from all over the world with their money. And they were, they were doing exchanges and they were dealing with them. Of course, who set the interest rate? Who set the exchange rate? Well, it was the temple. The temple became big business. The temple was the wealth of Jerusalem. The temple was the place, particularly at this time of year, at Passover. There would be, Jophesus spoke about, this is amazing, that 225 thousand animals would be exchanged in this week. Imagine that. Nearly a quarter of a million creatures 
would be exchanged, sold, sacrificed in this temple. I mean, that is massive amount of wealth, massive amount of money. And Jesus looks at this and what they've done is turn relationship and the presence of God and the glory of God into a money-making event. They've turned it into wealth. They've turned religion into a money-making moment. And it was all wrong. All wrong. We have to be so careful in our own lives. That in the temple of our own lives, our priority is not our wealth. Our priority is not our ego. Our priority is not our, our, our image. Our priority isn't rooted in the idols of the world. In the temple of our lives, we've got to be so careful that we do not fill our lives so much with everything else, with everything else that we do not fill it with God. Because Jesus has a way of coming even into our lives and saying, this is wrong. You've turned your life into a den of robbers. You've become so full of your own busyness and your own wealth and your own activity that you've not created a holy space for me. Clear the temple out. This part of the temple was designed for one reason. It was for the Gentiles to pray. It was called the Gentile courts. And the, and the business of religion stopped those that needed to pray and contemplate and come and worship from coming. They excluded the world. This moment would have shocked everybody. Would have shocked them. Why? Well, very simply... Because there was a common belief that when the Messiah returned, he would exclude all the Gentiles from Jerusalem and he would get rid of them all. But here the Messiah was returning and he was including everybody. He was including all people. He cleared it out so that all nations, whether Jews or not, could come. That they could come and experience God's presence. That they could come and pray. They could come close to God. And I think there's a number of lessons that we can learn here. We learn about the wholeness of the meekness and the majesty of Christ. That he is the lion and the lamb. And we learn that what is high on Jesus' agenda for redemption is that everybody can come and pray. Everybody can connect. Everybody can come into the holy presence. You see, God's presence, as you've heard me talk before, has been in the tabernacle and in the temple, and now it's in the church, and now God's presence is in you. So don't fill it with everything else. Create the space to allow God to work in you. You're wondering why God feels distant. You're wondering why you've lost your spiritual compass. You're wondering why and how you've become disorientated in your faith. Well, it often becomes that the temple of your own life becomes so cluttered with the noise and the activities of everything else except allowing space for God.
to come. When Josiah was small, he used to come to me and say, Dad, come and play with me. I was like, yeah, I'd love to. I'd go into the room and his room would be covered, covered with as many toys as you can imagine. Lego, Meccano. He would have toys everywhere. He would have stuffies all over, teddy bears, all of these things. Because it had been the youngest, he inherited all the kids' toys from the girls as well. And they were everywhere. And he'd say, come and play with me. And I'll say, there's no space for daddy. There's no space. And then he would pause and think. And, and he would stand up and he'd start to kick all the toys And he made a great big circle and he would say to me, look, Daddy, there's space. Come and sit down with me. And I think the problem is that for so many of us, we've lost the vision of who Christ is, the lion and the lamb, the one that came into Jerusalem, the majesty and the meek. And what we have lost is this. The ability for space to be with God. Do you remember the first real temple in the story of temples and tabernacles was the Garden of Eden. And that was, in one sense, it was a garden temple. It was beautiful. You could go there and you could walk with God in the cool of the evening. And Adam and Eve enjoyed that presence when sin when other things became greater priority for Adam and Eve, other things became more important. They came out the garden with the great fall. And you see, this has always been the problem, that other things can become a higher priority, a higher priority, a higher priority. Other things become more important in our lives than being with the Lord. And of course, we know from, from Genesis 3:24, a flaming sword flashed back and forth. That's the sword of eternal justice and the sword of God's judgment. And nobody can get back into that relationship because nobody can stand the judgment of God. But Christ was on the journey to the cross to experience the flaming sword of judgment so that you and I can enter back into the garden. And will you now make space for God in your life? This Holy Week, we've got four evenings of prayer online each evening. Make space for Christ in this Holy Week. Four online worship and prayer events at seven. Make space. Do not let other things rule you. Keep your temple pure and create that space for God. Father, as we come to the end of this service, I pray that you will be with us. I pray, Lord, that for each one of us, we may have a fresh vision of the lion and the lamb, of the meek and the majesty, of the war horse and the donkey. And that, Lord, we may again create that moment when we allow 
space for you to work in our lives. Amen. Happy Palm Sunday. And we'll see you Monday evening, Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday. And the Lord bless you. Thanks for joining us.